Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, welcome back. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going good, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody as well. If you do want to follow me on Twitter, go to your Twitter app or the Twitter dot com domain and follow me at focused compound mm-hmm. if you want to email jeff get into contact with him about anything investing related feel free to email him at gannon on investing at gmail.com mm-hmm. we also manage accounts for investors and other advisors we can say that now okay feel free to email me if you're interested in that info at focused compounding.com okay that's it if you want to complain about something email jeff gannon on investing. <laughs> Just kidding. so today we're going to be talking about um warren buffett's um Berkshire letter that came out recently, okay. and you you liked the letter. You said it was a little bit different than the past ones, and yes, and very it, different. And yeah. it was, and we could definitely go over why. And um, you know, this time of year is great. It's like Charlie Munger does his daily journal mm-hmm. meeting, and then you know he was on CNBC, and then Warren Buffett comes out with his letter, and then yeah. he was on CNBC, and you know, I got to soak it up. Charlie Munger's ninety five, and Warren is is he eighty eight now or eighty seven? Eighty eight, I think. Eighty eight. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's pretty incredible to see them still sharp as ever yeah so you not this year but in the past you did go to a, I, did, I did munger did. so you saw munger in person yes and i was upset that i did not go this year and okay. I, it's kind of like the best kept secret when i was there there's probably i don't even know 100 ish people and, okay. and like i'm pretty sure this year was way more than that they needed a bigger room and so is that in california yep all right yes so and what was that like it was incredible yeah it, it was you know i mean same thing you kind of get a lot of the answers are the same, which mm-hmm. is kind of great because they, I guess, still think the same. But it's just cool to hear it, you know, straight from his mouth and mm-hmm. kind of see him and be there in person. And, and what's most fun is meeting other investors, people yeah. on FinTwit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, other investors that you know about and then seeing them in person. I saw Monish and, um, you know, there's just it's, it's fun. It's just a bunch of investing junkies in one room mm-hmm. and listening to the guy preach. So it's, it's mm-hmm. always a good time. It'd be fun to go to the Berkshire meeting mm-hmm. itself too but yeah a lot now, of people go there network and stuff but you can't yeah. see it online at, at i was gonna yahoo, say now yeah. that they do it on yahoo mm-hmm. that's you don't have to go all the way to omaha to, to do yeah. that well i think they didn't have a venue big enough anymore yeah i mean that that they were you know basically um had more people wanting to go mm-hmm. than could be there also i think uh airlines and hotels and stuff got to be difficult yeah omaha is a big city but it's not that big yeah it's not new york Anyways, so we're going to be going over the Berkshire letter, and we could just kind of go mm-hmm. through what you thought about it. Um, they have an equity portfolio valued at $173 billion at okay. the end of 2018. Yeah, and Buffett manages probably $140, 150000000000 of that. Yeah. He, uh, I Can think- you imagine having to allocate that much capital? It's difficult, and he talked about that in the interview that he did. So on uh, the uh, Monday after the letter came out, he did an interview on CNBC, and I think he's been doing that for at least a decade. Um, and so he talked about some things in that, and yeah, he talks about how difficult it is. People don't believe that; they think it's easier. Everyone like, well, a lot of people like to kind of poo-poo his record, 
Mm-hmm. And I get it. Like, it's not as good as it's been or like as the S&P 500, but it's like, how can yeah. you allocate that much money? Well, he talked about how his record and those are the two people, um, uh, Todd Combs and Ted Wessler, who um, uh, also uh, have portfolios. I guess those two each have about $13 billion or something, I think yeah. they said they manage. Um, I have, since they started out, um, done a little worse than the S&P 500, and he's done worse than that, he said, in his equity portfolio. So they've had trouble beating the S&P 500 since the recovery, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been tough when markets go straight up, right? Yeah, I think the last 10 years or so has been about the toughest time for anyone to beat the S&P 500 that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting, and I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on on this, was he did a lot, he spent a lot of time talking about I guess sort of like the economics behind repurchasing your own stock. Right. And it's almost like I get the impression that he's just kind of like educating his, his I guess, partners or his shareholders or people who are reading it all about repurchasing stock. It's like, is that what he's going to want to do is, you know, yes. buy back a lot of Berkshire stock? That's the impression that I get. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest reason probably for dropping book value. So since, um, I don't remember what letter they started doing it in, that they started reporting it, but um, going back, they have it, from, I think, 1965, um, they report the um, change in book value each year in a big table at the beginning, right before the letter starts. And um, then the first line of the letter has always been um, what Berkshire's change in book value was. Yeah. And they dropped that this year. So that's something that they dropped for the first time in over 50 years or something. So that's a huge deal. Um, And the logical reason for why you would do that is if you planned to buyback stock above book value yeah yeah and then he he went on to of course bash adjusted ebitda which okay he talks about a lot in mm-hmm. stock ownership um and then getting back to he went back into the repurchase theme he demonstrated it by talking about their holdings in american express mm-hmm. and he said berkshire's holdings of american express have remained unchanged over the past eight years meanwhile our ownership increased from 12.6 percent to 17.9 percent because of repurchases made by the company yeah, and American Express buys back a lot of stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just super surprised that he he spent like the whole letter talking about buybacks. Mm-hmm. I think that's the reason why he he laid it out. And in the interview, he mentioned that that's the sort of thing that he um, thought about. Is he thought of it from the perspective, well, what if my sisters who own Berkshire stock said, oh well, if Berkshire's buying back stock, should I sell? Mm-hmm. And so he thought, okay, so let me explain why you should or shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you think about the the report? Oh, I thought it was the best letter in a very long time. Why? Um, well, it did two things that were very important. It talked about the logic of buybacks and the reason for not using book value, mm-hmm. which has made sense for a long time, why Berkshire should move away from using book value. Um, and then the other thing that it did is it talked about the importance of breaking um, how to value the company down into, I think he broke it down to five groves, he called them. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of having to come up with your own appraisal. I've seen lots of people appraise uh, Berkshire <laughs> And uh, some of the appraisal methods that they use I don't think are that smart, including Mm -hmm. some which um, take out the liabilities that they have for um, the insurance business, whereas I think that you need to count the insurance business um, uh, in terms of just funding the other things. Uh, Berkshire's insurance business has had an um, underwriting profit almost every year for a very long time now. Um, It's had like one or two losses in, I don't know, 20 years or something. So... Um, when you do that, it means that effectively Berkshire is being paid uh, by policyholders to um, hold money on their behalf. It's sort of like if you had a bank where you were paying the bank interest. Uh, and for that reason, it makes sense 
that the liabilities that that insurance uh, company has, uh, those insurance companies have, are really economic assets. And he sort of talked a little bit about that, which I think is important. Because most of the calculations that I had seen years ago people do for how to value the company really were valuing it more like a liquidation. So they relied more on book value and also as if the liabilities in the insurance business um, should be taken as liabilities instead of valuing it more like a bank or something where you would realize that the deposits are how you make money. So I thought he did a good job with that. Mm-hmm. What do you think about uh, what he talked about? Um, you know, if you were to invest a million dollars in, um, let's see, in the S and P five hundred, a low cost S and P five hundred, like way back when, um, that it would be worth today five point three billion. But if you had a one percent management fee on that, mm-hmm. um, it would be two point six five billion. Yeah, that's true. Over a long period of time, he talked about that. Yeah, yeah. and that's important. Um, of course. Berkshire's results are a lot better than that. Um, yeah, I mean, the management fee thing is a big issue. The The big issue is just how high you compound at. Sure. So you need to get a performance that um, justifies the entire amount of the performance fee. Um, you know, for the average person thinking about investing in the S&P 500 mutual funds or something, getting a very low expense ratio is the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but investing in Berkshire is a much better decision. I was just going to say, yeah. why wouldn't people just invest in Berkshire over, like, the S&P 500? I don't know. Is that what you would do? Or what you would suggest people yeah. do? Yeah. That's what I always do. Instead of buying the SPY or SPX or whatever, just buy uh, the Berkshire B shares. Or- yeah. I mean, we won't get into how cheap I think Berkshire is versus other things too, but I will mm-hmm. also say I think Berkshire is cheaper than the S&P 500 right now. Why do you think he has so much cash? You know, a lot of people always say, follow what he does instead of what he says. Yes. You know, he's always talking about well, how America over the long term is going to do great. Mm-hmm. And it's probably true. Yeah. Right. And it has done great. But why do you think he's holding so much cash? Is that because it's hard to, to deploy it? I mean, that's probably some of it, right? Mm-hmm. But do you think he's waiting for some sort of sell-off? I mean, what do you think by that? I don't think he's waiting or timing things. I think he just sees that everything's too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's if you listen very carefully to what he says, he's pretty much saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... He said that his, you know, competition with private equity, for instance, is difficult. That private equity will pay more for a company than he'd be willing to. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentioned in the interview that there was a big deal that he was hoping would happen in the fourth quarter to buy an entire company and didn't happen. Um, so there are some things with that. But they probably have about $80 billion that they could use right away. Um, so they're basically sitting on that. There's There's some cash that they have that they want to always keep on hand. But certainly without borrowing, they could do an $80 billion deal. Mm-hmm. And then you could borrow on top of that too, at least temporarily and stuff. So, um, And I think Charlie Munger you know, mentioned, I forget if it was at the past annual meeting or, or somewhere where he said that he'd be a lot more willing than Warren to, to leverage that up if they found the right deal. So he'd be willing to go well over $100 million, you mm-hmm. know, to, uh, $100 billion to, yeah. uh, to closer to, 100, to $150 billion or something. Mm-hmm. So they could do a really, really big deal. But you think about how many... Um, you know, companies have that much. To give you an example, um, Apple is sitting on a similar amount, uh, actually a little bit more, probably mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, in cash, in cash, yep. uh, cash net of uh, debt. Yep. They also have some debt, um, but th- you know, excess cash they have is even a little, a little bit more than Berkshire probably right now. Um, but other than that, who around the world is no one really. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the issue that you have, and Apple will probably deploy by buying back their own stock. Mm-hmm. Apple's never been able to find something to acquire sure. to soak up the cash. So they have that same problem. What did you think about Warren's interview that he did? Was that with Becky Quick? Yeah. What did you think about it? Good. 
It was did he fun. talk yeah. about? I didn't. I didn't watch it. Did he talk mm-hmm. about the whole Kraft Heinz debacle? Yes. What did he yeah. say about it? That he paid too much for um, Kraft, mm-hmm. but did not pay too much for Heinz. He thinks. So uh, the, the history on that is that uh, Berkshire and 3G went kind of fifty-fifty partners in acquiring Heinz, mm-hmm. the ketchup and, and other things company. And um, then they uh, crafted split off part of it to Mondelez and the other part to Kraft. Yeah, uh, Kraft being this sort of slower growth um, parts of things, and um, and then Heinz acquired Kraft, and that brought Buffett's um, uh, Berkshire's interest in the combined company down closer to twenty five percent. I forget if it's like twenty seven percent or something. But um, so as a result, he said that they that um, what he was saying basically is that Heinz paid too much to acquire Kraft. The company is now called Kraft Heinz, but it mm-hmm. was really Heinz acquiring Kraft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think about how he talks about um, because of the new like book value or the new accounting rules? Mm-hmm. How like the disparity in earnings every single quarter? Yeah, it's a terrible rule. Uh-huh. But why do they do it? There's an attract the mark to market thing's always been attractive from an accounting perspective, from a regulation perspective. They've always ad- adopted the idea that mark to market's good. I don't know if mark to market's always good, but. It has good aspects to it um, in that it it gives less discretion to management, I guess. But it's very um, it's very problematic that way. For at least I don't know um, forty years or so, um, Berkshire has um, uh, for accounting. Well, was it forty years? I don't know exactly when it was, but uh, it feels like it to me. Um, they've been um, using uh, the, they mark to market their. Um, stocks uh for book value purposes yeah before then actually um in the very beginning of berkshire they would have carried their stocks because they were an insurance company without even marking them to market for balance sheet purposes but what they do is they don't pass that through the income statement now what people pay attention to is not the comprehensive income which um instead they most investors pay attention to um net income uh, I'm not sure if that's a smart idea. Most investors should probably look at comprehensive income too and look at changes in book value and understand the differences between them, but they don't. So as a result, now um, people won't be able to strip out the changes in the portfolio versus the um, results that Berkshire reports each quarter. So the headline number you see each quarter will be pretty meaningless. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen in Berkshire in 10 years? I don't want to say I don't like to say when Warren and Charlie <laughs> are gone. I think it's a little... But what do you think Berkshire's going to be like? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we have a pretty good idea of who will be involved in running it. Yep. There's two people um, who, who've been, one put in charge of all the insurance things and one put in charge of all the operating businesses. Mm-hmm. And then we also know that there are two other people who are, like I said, each managing $13 billion. Presumably the people who are each managing the $13 billion um, would basically be managing all of Berkshire's stock portfolio. Um, the person that you have in charge of the um, operating businesses would basically be running that part, and then you have someone in charge of insurance running that. So that's pretty simple to understand. Um, and then you need someone at the top, which would presumably be um, uh, Warren's son, mm-hmm. Howie, um, who would be um, who's also, the, he's on the, the non-executive board, chairman yeah. or whatever they would call him, yeah. Um, and he would act as the chairman. Basically, the reason for that is um, I assume he would, uh, by having someone who has the Buffett name and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, he could be involved in replacing anyone they had a problem with. Mm-hmm. So the reason for having a chairman like that is basically to help in succession. Cause sure. at some points you're going to have, you could have a scandal that you need to get rid of mm-hmm. someone that happened with, um, with Sokol, um, who they had, uh, who was an important manager at Berkshire previously. So something like that could happen. People can die, they can retire, they can quit, or they can just not work out. 
So there will be some Buffett um, still on the board. Mm -hmm. And then you have probably those four people being the key people. Um, I would assume more that there's more already there's more separation between the insurance business and the um, operating businesses and the investing, which is the three things that Buffett um, was involved in doing. Um, so in, in terms of capital allocation, I assume they'll just buy back a lot of stock. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they'll pay a dividend. That's something they've talked about. No, I think I kind of get the impression. I think they're going to buy back a lot of their stock and then kind of keep it going as usual, but they're probably mm-hmm. going to buy back a lot of stock. What do you think about um, the stock price, how it's going to be on, on that day? Is it going to be like Apple? Remember what happened when Apple, when Steve Jobs died and the stock just like plummeted? Okay. Um, that's a question that people have. He always says he, he thinks yeah, he's going to be an event, right? Yeah. He, I could see like, him like having like a video where if, it, if it, like the stock like crashes afterwards, yeah. he's like, look, I, I'm dead, but everything's okay. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> um, not laughing at that. I'm just saying. Yeah. 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 Um, I think, I don't know. That That's a very hard thing to know. Um, I don't see any reason why it should drop a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buffett's become less and less important to the company over time, not be for any reason other than just the size. Sure. So like we talked about the equity portfolio things, like when people asked about, well, how much is there? Um, I, when I'd um, talk to people, they would say, well, there's this Buffett premium in the stock, and stuff, yeah. which I don't believe is true. But You don't believe that's true? No. The Berkshire doesn't trade above. Um, I was say, it's not trading. What? You, was it below book value? Or no, no, it's about 1.3 book, yeah. book values. No, no, no. But in term, no, Berkshire right now is cheaper than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. If you split off its parts and sold it to private equity and stuff, it would go for more than it is. Um, I, I don't, uh, trading at, um, I don't think that, it, I think the reason why it is, um, does not trade at a premium is because it's a huge company which can't be taken over and which is, he said many times has no intention of breaking up and stuff. Mm-hmm. If tomorrow um, you heard that Berkshire was going to break up, I think that people would start bidding up the stock incredibly high. It, there's, but there's no quick buck to be made in the stock. Sure. So I think that's why it doesn't trade that high. Mm-hmm. Um, so why it sometimes trades cheaper. And I think in, you know, we talked about the period where they've underperformed the S and P 500 in the, in terms of the equity portfolio and stuff in these last 10 years. But I think in these last 10 years, Berkshire's often been pretty cheap versus, um, uh, what I think its intrinsic value is, and that hasn't always been the case in the past. They they actually talked about that as well in the an article that they think it's cheaper than their estimation of intrinsic value. Yeah, it and is. He, and he said that multiple times. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you go about? How do you go about um, trying to figure out the intrinsic value of the company? Because I've seen a bunch of different ways that people think about it. Yeah. So the first thing, so you think of it as a fund, basically, mm-hmm. and the first thing you do is you don't think of it in terms of liquidation or applying like a, a discount to it which people sometimes do you think of it as an ongoing uh business so you try to figure out what it um what its value is and how much it'll compound in the future he talked about the five groves which i guess are um the insurance business um the operating businesses uh which are not insurance businesses um the uh equity holdings that they have and then they also talked about um the the for accounting purposes the things that they partially own um which are a little more complicated like Kraft Heinz so they can't they don't um mark Kraft Heinz to market the same way that they do um smaller stocks mm-hmm. um and then the last thing i guess would be um the uh like cash and similar things so like short term bond yeah. things yeah um, so that's easy. The cash is worth what the cash is worth. Mm-hmm. Um, the equity portfolio, you can take at the value of the equity portfolio. Uh, that's fine. Um, I think that it, the equity portfolio won't perform that well in the future, but I don't think the S&P 500 will perform that well in the future. That's why. So um, then you look at the insurance business. It's a great insurance business. It's one of the best in the world. 
So that's the part that most people undervalue. Um, and then you have the operating businesses, which are, if you look at the results, are pretty good. Um, and you can try to value them. That you have a railroad there, um, which is the most important part is the railroad and the uh, utility business. Those are the two most important. Um, the railroad and the energy business, and that accounts for a very large part of it. And then you have a mix of the other things. I mean, it goes through the letter breaking them down, what mm-hmm. they're worth. And sure. you would just apply multiples to each of them. You'd say, okay. So literally do a sum of the parts kind yeah. of analysis with it, yeah. You'd say, is this worth 15 times earnings, 20 times earnings? What's mm-hmm. it worth, you know? Um, and if you do that kind of math, you'll see that it's pretty cheap. I mean, one way to compare it is think about the S&P 500 or many stocks in the S&P 500. What do they trade out versus book value? Mm-hmm. Um, even take something like, okay, so there's a huge insurance business. What do many huge insurers trade at versus book value? Like, like for instance, they have a very big business, Geico. So it's not their biggest insurance business, but it's big. Um, when we talk about book value, people have to understand what Progressive, Geico's most similar competitor, trades at in terms of book value. Progressive never trades anywhere near book value. That would be incredibly cheap. You would want to buy Progressive if it ever gets anywhere near book value because it's an excellent business, and Geico's an excellent business. They have an underwriting profit, plus they grow float a lot. Um, the quality of the insurance businesses are very, very good, and that's one of the biggest reasons why the stock is undervalued. Is that I think the market generally undervalues the insurance businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you don't, you wouldn't put any like if you're thinking about its future, you wouldn't put anything into it about Buffett's and Munger's future being the you know being a part of Berkshire. I don't think it matters as much now as it used to because, as you saw, Buffett couldn't outperform the S and P 500 over the last ten years, and the reason for that. Is that he was managing 170 billion dollars instead yeah. of 170 million? If he was managing 170 million, he could have outperformed. Yeah, yeah. So you would just kind of factor that in. in I don't think that it matter. I don't. But think I'm just that, saying, like, you're not expecting them to outperform. Is what you're pretty much saying. Correct. Got it. And I think I wrote something about it. I don't know, ten years ago or something. And at that point, I was saying, you know, it's a very small difference now. Um, it has some advantages because of buying. Um, uh, entire companies, yeah. Which whoever is running the company after Buffett and Munger are gone won't have the same um, ability to buy an entire company. You don't think like the deal, the deal, the deal flow, flow won't be as good? Yeah. No, because some people will sell to them to sell to Buffett, um, because f- he's just a famous investor, right? So, like for instance, like like Luxottica did a deal where Luxottica merged with Essilor. Their their family was looking for a way out. Basically, the yeah. the the person who founded it and run it for ran it um, for all that time didn't really want to pass on operating control and stuff to his kids. So um, he needed a way out, right? And, mm-hmm. and he merged with their biggest, um, the he was the biggest um, frame uh, eyeglass frame company in the world. And he f- had always been uh, the company that was the biggest um, lens company, had always wanted to merge with them. Sure. So that's what he did, and that was his way out. But people in that situation of this huge, really good company um, that they founded will often think of Buffett, but would never think of just selling to private equity. Right, mm-hmm. they they think of it as like a safe home that way. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that at the end of their career they might think about a merger or um, a deal to sell to someone where they would not sell to. Um, I don't want to name any of them, but any of the private equity firms you can think of because they would put they would go public with them again in five years or yeah, something. You know, sure. Um, whereas Berkshire is going to hold on to them forever. Yeah, interesting, cool. Well, you know, was- and there was some deal that we don't know about that he. Yeah, I wonder what considered that is. Considered, yeah, it was obviously a big one. I mean, there. I think there have been Berkshire has Buffett has probably looked at deals that are bigger than anything that Berkshire has done yet. Mm-hmm. That's the impression I get from that statement. And a couple other ones he's made in the past, and they don't work out. But 
you know, there is it is possible that one day um, you, you think it's because they just can't come together on a price. Probably, yeah. One day though, yeah. So I mean, and he talked about how in the interview he talked about how much they, how quickly he spent so much money in two thousand eight. Uh-huh. You know, he's like too quickly because yeah. as it turned out, the prices kept going down. He would have yeah. been better off. But um, that's true. If you had a panic or something like that, and you know, who could have predicted that before 2008? Sure. Um, but yeah, right now with where prices are and everything, it's very hard for them to spend it. I think the primary thing that they'll do long term, if we're talking about where do I think they'll use most money for the next 10 years, I think it's buying back their stock. Yeah. And that's the impression that I got from from this letter. It was a, it was a launch yeah. of education on buying back the stock and what that means for the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was great. And for anyone that is interested in the annual meeting, it is going to take place Saturday, May 4th. What I like to do is wake up and, you know, pop on my TV, Yahoo Finance. And yeah. And it's a lot of fun. And a lot of it, like I said, a lot of it they've answered before. I mean, you could go sure. back to like the vault, right? Back to right. like the 90s. Yeah. And they were mm-hmm. saying the same stuff. But I think yeah. that's almost the beauty in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as they get older, I feel like as Charlie gets older, he's a little bit more uh, honest, which is a lot, <laughs> is always a lot of fun. And uh, I really love uh, watching it on Yahoo Finance. So you can do that and keep uh, or put that down on your calendar. I want to thank everybody for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you want to get access to Jeff's memos that he does send out, we send out every single week. Go to focuscompounding.com. There's a free part on there, and that'll put you on our email list, and that will allow those memos to go to you every single week. If you do want to sign up, be sure you do use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and what that'll do is take money off of the monthly price every single month. And there's also an annual option on there as well. Yeah. And there is. And follow me at at Focus Compound. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I want to thank you so much. Everybody else, have a great week. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.